Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Yogesh Mystery. Hello, welcome. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what made you want to come onto the podcast today? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you said, my name is Yogesh. Um, I am a PE teacher, um, also a deputy senko, and I'm also the sports coordinator for for the trust that I work for. I live in the southeast of England in a small town called Leighton Buzzard. I am the fourth of five children. The The three that are older than me are all, all boys. My the youngest is a girl, uh, so I'm the fourth boy in the family. Uh, I am of Indian uh, ethnicity, and I suffer from bouts of depression and anxiety. And the reason I've sort of volunteered to come and do this podcast, um, I, I want to talk about what's obviously the Black Lives Movement that's going on at the moment and how racism has actually impacted my life and how it's impacted my view of masculinity and the impact it's had on my depression and anxiety. So we start this podcast by just asking people to talk about their relationship with their identity at six. Given the nature of what you just said to me as well, could I ask you to talk about your relationship at six with masculinity and race and how what you were being told about your race and your identity as a man were feeding into each other and your sense of self as a child? Yeah, I mean, I go back to a, a key moment in my life, and I think this is probably it could it's changed my life forever. And I wonder what my life would have been like had it gone the other way. Now, when I started school, I mean, my English wasn't great. I didn't communicate with the other kids in my class easily. I struggled to make friends at break times. I had a brother that's two years older than me. I used to go hang around with him and his friends. I mean, I suppose he was my first friend. So I was a bit of a loner in my class. But one day uh, I happened to make a friendship with a, with a fellow fellow boy in, the, in my class and we were getting on brilliantly and I, I latched onto him. As you do, I was like, oh, yes, I've, I've got a friend, you know. And then as you do, at the end of a school day, you, you walk up to the school gate to to, see, to meet your parents I say I waved by. I said bye. He said he did the same. So the next day, I you know get to school, excited, searching out my one and only friend. I go see him. He's playing with some um, with some trucks, and I go grab a, grab a toy car and I go and sit, sort of play with him, and I say hello and whatever. And then what he said has probably affected me. Well, it's definitely affected me for the rest of my life. Um, 
and it's the first bit of racism I can I've ever come across. Um, so he turns around and says to me, "Can't be friends with you." My mum says, "I can't be friends with brown people," and and it just it shook me to the core. Like I I, I couldn't believe it. Like I, you know, I don't see colour, I don't see race, I don't see racism. I've never felt it before, and I just couldn't believe it. And then up until that point, nobody else had ever been racist to me. And and then all the other kids sort of latched on and goes, aha, you're brown and all this sort of racist stuff that all came from it. Uh, and I just thought, you know, uh, racism is learned. You know, you teach people to be racist. It's, you know, it's not, you're not born to be racist. And that right there, that mother, she doesn't have got a clue. She probably never have a clue, you know, about any of this, but the impact that she has made on my life through her child and what she taught him and then that's then impacted on me and then now I've gone through all my early stages of life thinking why was something wrong with me um I'm brown why am I brown I mean is that bad is that wrong um so now I've got an inferiority complex I as a man I don't feel like a man so I feel demasculated demasculated so is to be a man, to, to be masculine, are you supposed to be white, strong, big? They're the views that I'm I, I'm being taught and told at this age. You know, my relationship from a young age of who I am was very skewered. It was very much, well, I regretted being brown. You know, I wished I was white. Maybe my life would be easier. And like I said, that 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 moment right there, I think it really changed me because that's when the racism started and it never stopped. Thank you so much for such an open answer. And as I've said in previous podcasts, the part of the reason I wanted to make this show is because uh, I have a very complicated relationship with masculinity myself as a gay man. Kind of you're told that you're not a proper man if you're a gay man and you'd rather love men than kill them um, or fight them, which I've always found rather strange. And whilst I can't, remotely empathize with what you would have been through in that uh, sympathize mm. with what you'd have been through empathize with the pain of course but that sense i can't understand what you would have gone through um being a white man myself but the closest i can come to comparing to it is that yeah. sense of someone told me of my otherness around a similar age before i was aware of it you said you weren't aware of your your difference when you were younger until someone points it out to you in a horrible way so can i ask you for listeners if it's fine for you to do this and isn't too distressing and triggering that sense of to unpack those initial responses to being told that at six, can you remember how you initially reacted when uh, suddenly you were being confronted with your otherness at such a vulnerable young age? There's, there's a sense of shock to, to begin with. I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. You know, now someone's highlighting that there is something wrong with me. You're brown. That's wrong. And I'm like, I never thought being brown was a wrong thing. And it isn't wrong. Of course it's not wrong. But somebody is telling me that is wrong, and then I am inferior. I'm I'm less of a person than anybody else in this classroom or in this school right now because because I am brown, and that that inferiority it's it's I think it's something that's that stayed with me even into adulthood. When I sought saw, saw advice, I sought advice from my mum. I said, you know. I'm getting picked on at school. They're, 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 they're being racist. They're, being, they're calling me all these names like brown this, uh, packy that, you smell like poo, you are the colour of poo, all this sort of stuff. And and my mum said to me, you know, you've, you've got to be strong. You've got to be tough. And you've got to fight back and stand up for yourself. And 
I was, I was always quite a confident person anyway, or at least I thought I was. So I did fight back and I, and I developed this thick, thick skin and I was mentally tough and I maintained that way. And I fought back and I never, and I challenged it. You know, anybody said anything remotely racist, I challenged them. I fought back, you know, I'm going to show you, I am not inferior. I'm going to show you that I'm right to be brown. It's good to be brown. And I'm going to, and I'm a proud Indian man. And I'm going to show you that and I'm not going to tolerate it. And I, and, I, and, that, that, and that just that toughness and that strong mentality and that fighting back and standing up for myself, that just got grew thicker and thicker and thicker. And it almost became to a point where, you know, I'm not feeling any emotion anymore because I'm so bitter, I'm so strong. And anything you say is now bouncing off of me because I've got something to say back to you because I'm stronger than you think that I am because your words won't hurt me. And it was, and it got, and, it, and I got like that. And I, and I probably, a lot of people didn't want to be friends with me because of that, more so than the fact that I wasn't, because of the fact that I'm brown. Thank you for sharing that. I, again, empathise so much in that sense. You close lots of yourself off to be able to become a bit bulletproof. I don't know about you, but I look back on those times, especially those ages like six, when you've got so little in your head because you're different. You've got so much on your mind because you're constantly trying to defend yourself at six years old and question your place in the world at six years old. I just feel so much... Let's say what it is. Horrible. It's so much pain for younger people who are different, who have to deal with the weight of that at such a vulnerable age. Can I ask, if you don't mind me asking, how your relationship with your older brothers affected your relationship with yourself as a young boy? Uh, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to answer because partly I don't really remember around that age how they, you know, what sort of influences and advice they gave me, but. In terms of how they were with me, in the, say in the period between zero to ten, my oldest brother, he's I, I grew up idolizing him. He was my hero. Um, he he's probably a, I mean is an impact in probably what I do now in terms of being a PE teacher. He he loves his sport, absolutely loves it. Um, my my first breeze of him is is of him always just playing football, cricket. It was popular on our street. Everybody used to come and knock for him. Oh, are you going to come out to play football, cricket, whatever? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he dragged us along. And I would say dragged us, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in a good way. Like he introduced me to a world of sport um, where I channeled a lot of my frustrations and anger towards. And, you know, he was he's a naturally very gifted sportsman. He's probably best in our in our family and that's that's great but I just wanted to be like him and in in that sense because he introduced me to sport I was able to deal with a lot of stuff that I was going through and yeah he may not have took me aside and said you deal with people this way you deal with people that way but he showed me a way of channeling a lot of my anger and frustrations um without ever needing to sort of put his arm around me and say these things my my second eldest brother, he he's very different, in fact, because he wasn't so much into his sports. I mean, we probably laughed at him because he wasn't good at sport um, and didn't have too much of an interest in the sports that we played. He tried, uh, unfortunately, just didn't come across as being that good. He's always a try, and he would always give it his best. But his his thing was 
you know, he he actually, in, in what's most male typical, I suppose you could say, is he, he had a love for cars. Uh, I remember that about him growing up and he had a love for DIY. Um, he's, before he moved to Canada many years ago, he, he decorated our, all our, our family home, you know, all the rooms and he did a brilliant job and he, he still got a, a keen interest in that and his cars and our motorbikes. Um, and he, and he and I talk a lot, I've recently bought a house. So he gives me tips on how to decorate and so forth. Um, my third eldest brother, um, also loved his sport as well, loves his sport. And he and I played a lot of sport together growing up. We, we were, which he's only two years older than me, um, talented uh, again at, at, at cricket, um, and I, I followed him in a way, in, in many ways, like the cricket clubs that he played for, I, I played for too, to begin with, until I kind of branched out on my own. But he, his talent is, he's an artist, um, very talented drawer, painter, he creates amazing pieces of work. Him being a middle child was the quietest child. Um, but their, their influences were, were very different. None of them ever said to me, fight racism like this and never really gave me advice in that sense they kind of showed me with their actions um if that makes sense but they they were they were strong males but equally the there was in there was bullying between us like there was you know if i remember the, the first movie i uh, i ever cried to was um short short circuit you know when johnny five apparently you know, when he died at the end or but even though he comes back to life afterwards, but um, I cried, I cried so much, and my brothers took the mick out of me. You sissy, you're, what are you doing? You're crying. Real men don't cry. Boys don't cry. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, wow, well, you know, obviously I'm the fourth boy. Like I've, I've got, I've got to show these these three boys that I'm a boy. I'm a man too. So I'm, a, I put that away. I don't cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm going to show you that I am a man. So can I ask you to talk a little bit now about uh, how your relationship with masculinity and racism changed as you neared your teenage years, as you became 16, how your understanding of yourself and your race had changed at that point? So at 16, I was, with everything that has happened, you know, developing this thick skin, I, I, I could almost describe it, oh, I'm a man's man now. I, I'm a 16-year-old, I'm strong, I'm, I'm in control. However, the vulnerabilities I would never show to people, but they were there. And I became very, very body conscious. Um, I've always been on the slimmer side, um, just, you know, fast metabolism, probably didn't eat regularly enough when I was a kid, but often I was always eager to go out, play football, cricket, whatever it was. And I would miss meals deliberately because I could just, because of eating to my sport time. Um, so I was, I was very skinny, um, you know, I, I, I developed this, this image that are oh, actually on um, how, how do women, how are women going to look at me? How can I make myself attractive? Am I attractive? Um, and I did become very conscious about that um, at 16. And like I said, I, I was, I was just trying to be as much in control as possible. Whereas really, I was I wasn't in control because you know I wasn't eating regularly. Um, I probably wasn't sleeping well, but I never admitted that to myself, and I didn't obviously ever said that to anybody. Um, but I couldn't show that I'm weak 
I still had to show anybody that wanted to be racist to me, I will fight back. Anyone that says I'm a sissy or I'm a crying or whatever, no, 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 no. I'm still that bulletproof guy. I might be skinny, but I will fight back harder. But really inside, it's eating me up. Why am I so skinny? People used to say to me, oh, by the time you get to 16, you'll fill out, you'll get bigger. Why is this not happening for me? You know, I, ha- I had this inferior complex where I look at somebody next to me and I'd be like, well, why am I? I'd compare myself to them. And I'd say, and I'd come to the conclusion, oh, they're better than me. Yeah, they're bigger than me, they're stronger than me, they're better than me. Why am I not that? What do, and I never, and I never really, never, I don't know, just it really got me down. And, and I was, I was probably a little bit more rebellious, 16, 17, 18, without realizing actually the underlying emotions that I was going through. I wasn't emotionally intelligent to know what was going on or to even deal with that. And obviously at 16, around that age, you know, you, me personally, I started having an interest in, in girls and started fancying girls a little bit more. Um, but in my town, it's very, it's a very white town. So I had this view because of all the racism I'd been through. And it wasn't just the boys, it was girls as well. I just had this view that, oh, white girls don't like me. They won't go for me. They won't fancy me. Uh, but I had it in my back of my head. Oh, wait till a brown girl sees me, though. Wait till a brown girl sees me. I'll get, bet you she'll fall head over heels in love with me. I don't know why. I just had that view. But I just always thought white girls wouldn't go for me. But that's not, but, you know, one thing with me is I'm actually really rubbish when it comes to picking up cues from women, like whether they are interested in me and so forth, and having conversations with certain people. Um, I realised, actually, there were girls back then that did fancy me, that did like me. I remember there was this one girl um she she did fancy me and she was blind like absolutely stunning well I thought so anyway at that time but when she told my mate and my mate told me as it happens when you're at school you don't tell each other directly do you um I laughed at him I was like you're having a laugh like you're you're winding me up this isn't true I never believed it and I found out later that it was true and I just couldn't believe and even now it's really weird I still find it difficult to believe if somebody likes me and that's both boys and girls so if a girl fancies me I find it hard to believe if 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 a guy likes me as a friend I find that hard hard to believe um and that's some of that that inferior complex that really started to develop around that teenage years because I was really body conscious and I'm looking in the mirror a lot and my clothes are hanging off of me um I've shot up in height a little bit um I, I my nose has got a lot lot bigger <laughs> uh, I've grown into my nose luckily now uh, but it's still fairly big um but at 16 it looked bigger than my face probably uh, but these are the things that I, I I thought and I looked at in the mirror and I said to myself you're not the best looking guy but I tried to convince myself I was and I put on this this fake confidence and I, and I developed this narcissism like, oh, everybody fancies me. Oh, I'm gorgeous. I'm this. I'm good looking. Because two things, I guess I'm trying to convince them, but also trying to convince myself. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it, it was a, a learning phase when I look back because it was, it was where my emotions and everything was starting to develop, but me not quite understanding what it is that was going on. 
thank you for such uh, witty, articulate response. I think there's so much in there I empathise with. First and foremost, that idea of uh, controlling your weight. That's something that surfaced from so many different men in this podcast series. I remember around 16, I knew I was gay at that time and couldn't really control that. I wanted to control it because people had shamed me for it. And sort of like you, I obsessively controlled my weight. I thought if I can't control my interior world, I'm going to control my exterior world and how I look as obsessively as I can to try and feel some kind of control. And that's the kind of common trope that's emerging in this podcast. So many younger men having eating disorders, either trying to kind of be incredibly muscly or being angry that they're not muscly or trying to control how thin they are. Uh, So it's just really moving to hear that someone else has gone through that. Um, And also that sense of, just hearing you say something I thought was completely idiosyncratic to me until recently, and then I've talked to people about it and thought, actually, I'm not alone in this. It's that sense of disbelief that people can fancy or even people want to be friends with you because you've spent your whole life being told you're lesser for that which makes you other, that you can't really compute that someone might want your company. And I found that so painful last year when friends were saying to me, I just made, I've met my now best friend last year. Um, and it took me a long time to accept that he wanted to be friends with me and didn't want work from me or didn't want to sleep with me because I put so much of my self-worth into either uh, sexual gratification or professional gratification that when someone wants to reach out to you socially, you think this feels mad. Uh, So it's just very, very moving to me on my point of view to hear you uh, speak so candidly about feeling like that. That's made me feel a little less alone, so thank you for being so honest. I think as well, lots of stuff that's emerged there, that idea of that teenage swagger or masculine swagger of thinking you're uh, fancyable and the world might see you as narcissistic is armour. So many people think that's default man, but it turns out that's default armour. I think so many people I know, and certainly looking back at my younger self and myself in my early 20s, just behaving like you are uh, an Adonis because you feel kind of like you're not worthy of friendship or romance. Again, that's something that's cropped up in several of these chats with people. So thank you for being candid about that too. It's really strange because at that age, because I developed that narcissism, that cocky arrogance, in a weird way, like, I, I was actually getting a little bit more noticed by girls. And the, the girl that, you know, you hear that, oh, a lot of girls like confidence and blah, blah. But obviously that's, that, that was being put on. And I thought, oh, I'm getting a little bit of attention here, so maybe I should carry it on. And I carried that on for probably a lot longer than I than I should have. And it was like I'd boast that, oh, I've never been dumped by a girl, like, oh, that's a good thing. Or I don't cry, I've never cried. I can't remember the last time I cried. And I'd boast about things like that because I thought that's a man right there. That's what man that's how a man is meant to be in this world. If you do cry or you know, you get dumped. Who, you know, what kind of person are you? Like that, that was almost developing in my mind. It was very warped. I had a very warped view of life, I guess. And that's obviously naivety, but a very warped view on how relationships um, develop and are. Um, I mean, my, my, my parents are, are were, were arranged. My mum got married when she was 18. My dad, he was 23. Um, and, I, and I grew up with that, with that, that mindset yeah you know maybe early 20s that's when I'll get married I'm 36 well, I'm going to be 36 next month I'm still single not married and um I've never really actually been in a long-term relationship as well and I think the insecurities that I have or have developed 
and my warped view has probably contributed to me not letting myself go and being vulnerable enough to be with someone and commit to them. And anyone that's wanted to, I've I've not allowed them to. But then anybody that, and I've always chased the wrong girls and, you know, yeah, gone after what the girls that happily not interested. I've always wanted the things that I can't have. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. And, you know, it's, it's some 30 or so, you know, maturing, and we'll get onto that obviously in a little bit, but it's where I started realizing more about that myself. But that age, it was, yeah, I had a very, I'd say a very, very warped view on where, where, what I should, what a man should be. I empathize so much with everything you just mentioned there. I think that sense of that armor you have can feel like a drug. It's that sense of when, when you've had a little bit of a drug and someone says, Oh, you were great. You were so fun and social. You think, okay, I'm going to have more. And it's that same when the armor gets, when the armor gets praised, Oh, you're now a little more confident. Suddenly then you become this caricature of yourself because you're wearing the armor all the time and never taking it off. So I was exactly the same with, camp when I was younger I kind of clown around at school in a camp way to kind of control the laughs I thought if people are going to mock me for being effeminate I'm going to perform effeminacy so I'm in control of it and before you know it you're kind of playing this character of yourself but it was exactly at that age and that time where you talked about using humor um I used humor to to combat the racism I would preempt it I would say to kids do you know what when I grow up or in a few years I'm going to own a corner shop because it's a stereotypical thing for a brown person to do. And for a long time, that stopped the racism. And yes, I'm thinking, good, I'm combating this. But it's never really addressing the fact that people wanted to still be racist, and I haven't educated anybody yet on how this is making me feel. Absolutely. I think, again, thank you for saying these things, because it just makes so many other people, including myself, feel more seen in that sense of, when you're younger, you will kind of make that joke at your expense first, thinking you're mm. stopping the joke happening, but actually you're just becoming your own abuser to some extent. And Absolutely. it's taken me a long time. To think. I've, there's a poet I love called C.A. Conrad, a queer poet, and he said, talk about Oscar Wilde, said, oh, you think he was just making you laugh, but he was stopping you beating him up. That's why he was witty. And you think it's there's such a horrible yeah. truth in that, that sense of... Yeah. Uh, Looking back on those teenage years, thinking you're in control of the prejudice by being bulletproof or trying to be witty, when actually you're just joining in with attacking yourself. I think it's really worth me saying as well that I have really respect you talking about not having long-term relationships because I feel exactly the same and I haven't had a long-term relationship because, like you, I feel, until recently, I've only just seen that this is the case, uh, I was weary of letting people close because... I had similar moments as you talked about in your childhood where you did meet someone who you really liked and then prejudice pulled them away from you. And so your first experiences of friendship or closeness were poisoned by bigotry or curtailed by ignorance. And so I think that's had repercussions in my adult life of don't get close to someone because they'll hurt you like they did in childhood. And only now am I undoing that. sentence. So again, it's just really, really moving to hear someone else at a different point in their life, a different part of the country, well, I've never met before, but kind of having really, really similar experiences and being open enough about them. 
So let's move into adulthood then. If that was your relationship with your teenage years, that sense of wearing the armour, kind of using wit to seemingly control uh, prejudice, but also uh, kind of hurting yourself by doing it. Talk to me about how you, how you were when you reached 26. What was your relationship with masculinity and that control of racism then? So at 26, I think the, the older I got, the less racism I've, I've suffered I mean, partly maybe because of the preempting of the with the humour, um, but I, I think society has grown up a little bit or accepted a lot more. And I, I, I wasn't in the same society anymore. I, I'd moved to university in Cardiff, where it was a little bit more multicultural. Um, there was people from all over the country and who were, you know, in the same boat, nervous, scared. Um, about the, this this new chapter in their life. I went to university a little bit later. I didn't go in my teens. I started at 20, 21. Um, and, and it's really strange because I thought, you know, I, there's an opportunity here to be more, to mix with people of my own culture and ethnicity. But I chose a course, uh, sport and exercise science. But again, I was the only, only Asian on the course. And it's like I'm putting myself in positions of where I'm surrounded by white people. And maybe that's a, a, a position actually of what I'm comfortable in because that's what I've been brought up in. Because actually, when I think about my race and people within my culture, I don't actually understand British Asians in this, in, in those that were brought up in, in areas with other British Asians. So if, say, 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 let's take uh, London, for example, where there are a lot of British Asians that so they like, Harrow as a community, a lot of British Indians who have grown up together, I never had that. So I don't quite understand them and I can't quite relate to them. And there's like a little barrier there. So even when I went to university, I had the opportunity to try to be friends with them. And the ones I did speak to or tried to be befriend or whatever, I, I found actually I didn't have too much in common with. So, so I was starting to question where do I where where do I fit in this world like I know I don't really belong with white people because they don't really want me uh, but British Asians I can't relate to them and then there's this term people use oh you're a coconut you know brown on the outside but white on the inside because my personality was guest formed around white people um, but I wouldn't obviously consider myself that because I'm very cultural um, and, I, and I love my culture I mean, I'm very Indian still but I'm not your atypical, if there is such an atypical British, British Indian, British Asian. So I'm kind of left in the middle. So it, in, the, in my 20s, I started noticing a change in me, my behaviour. Um, I'd gone through a heartbreak. Um, I'd chased a girl. I'd, you know, I, I, I clung onto her or wanted to be with her for too long. Even when we were, up, when we were broken up, I'd always had the hope that we'd get back together. And there was... There was that, there was hope, she'd give me hope because we'd sometimes get back together. But then, we'll, you know, when we were at universities, we'd be apart. So that heartbreak is the first time, you know, I really was, you know, emotional about a girl, but I wouldn't allow myself to be emotional. I didn't deal with that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a, that, that, that tough exterior that I built up from a, from a young kid, that comes to the, to the front again. And I'm like, nope, you won't, you won't break down. You won't cry. You're going to be tough. You're going to be strong. You're going to push this, uh, push through this because I'm not going to let you be vulnerable because that's not what men do. So that was still in there. 
and I wouldn't deal with the heartbreak. But at 24, when I'd finished university and come home, um, had that heartbreak, I, I'd felt, like I said, I was feeling something brewing, something was coming. And I was on the verge of a breakdown, but again, I wouldn't allow myself to break down. And I actually, I remember I stood at the top of the, the stairs, I was leaning against the banisters of my parents' house, with my head in my hands, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to run away. I'm going to run away because I can't deal with what's, what we're doing here, but I'm not going to cry. I felt teary, but I didn't do it. because the, But the man inside, he wanted to cry. But the man outside, the one that I developed, this exterior that I developed, he's not going to let that man inside cry. So those barriers that were so strong from the childhood, they still hadn't been pierced. Um, and that's where I was at 20, you know, in my 20s, my 26. But something was definitely changing in me. I'd, I'd stopped being religious. I stopped believing in Hinduism. I looked at myself and I started questioning myself and who I was and asking more questions about myself and learning more about myself. So this is now a real development phase for me. Um, and they say for your 20s, you, you start learning more about your habits. Well, your first 30 years of your life, you learn your habits and how they start to shape you and so forth. And in post-university, I, I really started looking inward and asking myself, who are you? Like, Because for years you'd had this narcissistic, cocky, arrogance guy that you'd built. But actually through university, a lot of people were not liking that person and were pulling me up. There's a guy that I lived with and he said to me one day, he goes, every time we talk, it, you always bring it back to yourself. You bring you into it, I into it. Nobody can talk about their experiences unless you say, and then you then say, yeah, but I did this too. And it really got me thinking and like, and then it started me thinking about my parents and their traits. And and I love my parents to bits. Actually, they I absolutely do adore them. But my parents have those those traits too in terms of they do re- refer some conversations back to themselves. And I don't know, I mean, that's intentional or just the way that they've been brought up. And they've been brought up in a very different time to me. So it's it's not an, actually a negative thing. But these are obviously traits that that I've, been, I've inherited. So very got me, it got me very conscious about that and. I suppose I went for a period where I deliberately wouldn't conversate with people like that. And I started to become more of a listener, more analytical of what people are saying and take a step back and take myself out of that and start listening to what people are saying to me and what they're going through and respond accordingly. Um, Because I don't think I ever really did that before. And this is where I think now I'm starting to be me but I'm not quite who I am now when I was then. Thank you so much. I think there's so much to unpack in that response. First and foremost, on that notion of people bringing conversations around themselves, I think that's a very human thing. So don't beat yourself too much about that. Someone said to me once that uh, the opposite of talking is not listening, it's waiting. And (laughs) since they've said that to me, every conversation I have, I'm kind of watching for that. Or every conversation I observe, I'm kind of seeing how people are doing. All they're doing is saying, "Mm, mm, mm," ready to talk. So it feels like that's a human thing. Can I ask you now about your journey then from 26 to 36, where you say you are now? How is your uh, relationship with masculinity and racial identity and racism changed in those 10 years? So post 30, 
uh, has been brilliant. Uh, it's been a roller coaster. It's where I, 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 I've discovered who I really am and I'm at peace with who I am and who I become. Just as I turned 30, I just felt there was this, when I talked about when I turned 24 and I nearly had a breakdown and, and there was something brewing. Well, whilst I, as I turned 30, this it, it reared his head again, but it reared his head even stronger. But quite a few of us, we went to Vegas for, for my brother's, my older brother's 40th birthday. And we were there for six six days, I think it was. And I don't think I was sober for for, for much of those six days. Um, but, you know, obviously alcohol has an, has, a, has an impact on you, an influence on you. And I think, I mean, when I got back, you know, a few days later, some people have that little come down or little depressive mode that they get into because of the alcohol that they've consumed. I've always had that. And I've always been able to shrug it off. But I think the volume that I'd consumed really like let out what had been brewing the monday we were back at school on the sunday but i woke up about one o'clock in the morning but i couldn't fall asleep and my mind was racing like a million miles an hour and all these negative thoughts from my life of who i was and everything that i'd you know built this wall of barrier against well that barrier had gone because all of a sudden now i'm dealing with everything that had actually emotionally hurt me but I'd never dealt with before so think about you know nearly 30 not 30 nearly 24 years worth of hurt you know negativity abuse it's all coming out and I remember reading Marcus Treskoffic's autobiography um, and him describing how he felt when he felt his anxiety and his depression hitting him and I related to that. I was like, that's exactly how I was feeling. The walls were caving in. I'm feeling the most loneliest person in the world. I'm breaking down here. I, I, I'm I, not crying yet, but I'm there. I'm close to. I didn't get much sleep because for hours and hours I couldn't. And I just had all these negative thoughts um, running through and racing through my mind. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how I was even dealing with it. And I, and I just come to the conclusion. I was like, Jokes, you're depressed. You are depressed. You're not happy. And you know what? I've not been happy for a long time. I've not been truly happy. I've had moments of happiness, but I've not, I'm not happy with my life and I'm where I am right now. And I got to school. I actually got to I turned, I turned up to school late because I'd, I'd slept in a bit. And then I got stuck in traffic. And I went to school and uh, I went straight to my first lesson. And um, I was hoping... I remember that lesson. I was hoping, right, the computers work so the kids can go on, log on, and just work, and I can just sit there and gather myself. Well, that didn't happen because the computers didn't work. And so I had to think on, my, think, think on the feet because I hadn't planned the lesson. And I was thinking, um, what can I do? What can I get? What, what, what? So I gave him a textbook and told him to copy out some paragraphs. It, it's terrible teaching. Um, I hope my employers are not listening. <laughs> um, and I remember I turned around and faced the, my teacher computer and because I wanted to do register and one of the kids asked me a question and right then I felt I'm about to explode but I held it together I wasn't stopping myself because uh, I have to be a man I'm stopping myself because I don't want to break down in front of my students um, and then I went to my second lesson and I saw my head of department who I've got a pretty good relationship with and I, and I had anyway um, and I said to him 
at break time, can I speak to you? And he saw that there was teariness in my eyes. Um, and he says, yes, anything you need, whatever. I'd got through that lesson. And then I saw him at break time and I spoke to him and I said to him, Matt, I, I'm depressed, I'm down. And, and this is the person I reached out to initially. Um, I didn't reach out to anybody in my family at the time. I, this is the first person and I spoke to him and I said to him, I just, I don't know what to do. I need some support, I need some help. Um, and he advised me. Um, he spoke to me at length. He gave me the time, which was great. Then the deputy head came over because I remember seeing him earlier in the day and I said, and I asked him the same question. If I could speak to him at break time, he come and found me and I said the same to him. And they were both brilliant. Both brilliant. And, they, and these two, when I look at them, actually, they're, probably, they're like man's men as well. Like one was an ex-army guy and the other one was like just you know, a typical football lad. Um, but it was, it, I felt so, it felt weird that they didn't say, oh, man up. <laughs> they They were like, okay. That's fine. And, then, and I was lucky, lucky in that sense. After that, that after break time, I had a, had a free period or a PPA as we call it. Um, so I went into the office and I must have seen another member of my, of my, of my, of my department, another PE teacher. And I must have seen him right beginning of the day because he, cause he come and found me because he said, when I saw you this morning, I, I knew something was up. And I didn't remember seeing him. So he come and found me. And he goes, are you okay? And that was it. 26 years, 24 years, whatever it is of, of you know, built up tears came out. I sobbed and I've never cried so much in my life. I can't even remember the last time I cried uh, because I've become that person. And every vulnerable feeling that I, I, I stopped myself from being, that come out there and then. And it felt amazing, like literally the best thing. And I say now, like, well, the, the, my breakdown was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It was a realization. And that's when I started being me. And I stopped this facade of it's, what it's this, this exterior that I had. And I don't, you know, I don't have to be tough or put a tough exterior on to show people that their words don't, you know, that they don't mean anything. Because actually, when people are negative and hurtful, they do. It does mean something, and it is hurtful. Um, but now it's if I hear it, I'm I'll address it. You know, I'll say, look, that's not right. You know, this is the impact it's having. Think about it. I want to educate you on what you're saying and the impact that your words have on people. And I I sat there for probably an hour crying and and just revealing all my inner darkest secrets, all the things that I was ashamed of, I guess. And I just revealed it to this to this guy, and I was lucky with this person. I was really lucky that you know he didn't laugh, he didn't belittle me, he didn't tell me to man up. He listened, and you know he shared some similar experiences that he'd gone through. And it's like, wow, other men can you know go through depression. Other men are vulnerable. Other men cry. Other, you know, to be a man is not to be strong all the time, and not to be a man, you can let your guard down. And that. And that's what I learned because this guy that I spoke to on the exterior, you know, he's big, he's muscular, good looking guy. He looks like a man's man. And you think he's got it together. What would he be depressed about? You know, those, those stereotypes you say to people when you think, when you hear, oh, they're depressed and you're like, what's that person got to be depressed about? But depression doesn't, you know, it doesn't discriminate as they say. 
So it picks anybody. And when he said to me that, you know, he'd got through some stuff and then I was able to relate and I thought, this is amazing. Why, why do we as men not talk about this enough to each other? Why do we hold all this stuff in and for this to happen and then to feel all right? Why have we not always, that all you know, our whole journey all along said to each other, mate, I'm feeling down. Can you give me some advice? Do you mind if I have a word with you? Do you mind what's your view on it? Without the fear of them saying, man up, you shouldn't feel like that. You know, you're just exaggerating. What have you got to be depressed about? You know, why, why, yeah, it's just, you know, those why questions came out and then just, it all just, it, I just got set free. I really did. And the things that I'd, I've been depressed about are things, you know, like, where I was in my career, the fact that I hadn't done or achieved things I said I wanted. When I was young, I said, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. That's great. It's great to have a dream, great to have a wish. But if you don't plan for it and you don't do the building blocks, it's not just going to happen. It's not no one's going to give it to you. No one's going to say, here you go. Here's a ticket for around the world, around the world trip. Go. No, you've got to earn that. You've got to work for it. I never worked for the things I wanted. And then from that point onwards, I've worked my butt for the things I've wanted in, in my life. So I've traveled more, you know, I've met, I've got friends all, all over the world. Now um, I still keep in contact with, I, I've, got, I've got bought a house recently, but that was a, a, a that's a target that I'd, I'd had for about five or six years. I've built up. Um, and I'm in a much happier place. I just believe I'm more genuine now with people. I'm very conscious also with, how I speak to people in that I don't want to upset them. I want to be nice because my words will have an impact, but equally, if you still push me too far and that, that person's upset me now, or they've upset me for a long period of time, I'll only take so much before I fight, I will not fight back, but bite back and say, look, I can't be nice all the time. I'm going to have to tell you how it is. And it might not, you might not appreciate it, but equally, it's going to do my mind, my, you know, my my, my depression or my self worth a lot better. Does that make sense? Sorry, a lot there. <laughs> Girls, me. No, it's just uh, overwhelmingly inspiring to hear because I'm just hearing you speak so candidly and positively about that uh, journey in all its. Uh, kind of transformative powerful beauty but also its ugliness and those questions of why why the idea of what it is to be a man is something we uphold as men it's not necessarily something that's superimposed on us we learn it from other men we could we perform it and as you say if we all just stopped doing it it would stop if we be the men we want to be instead of performing these versions we think we have to be then as your story is um evidence of we will just feel freer and acting is hard work and acting for 30 odd years is exhausting something that really changed my relationship with all that stuff is when an older man uh who's a friend of mine said to me look no one gives a shit about uh how you act and who you love because they're too worried about what people think of them for how they act and who they love so no one's really giving you a thought so stop performing for people that aren't really watching and you'll just feel far more free so 
to conclude this chat with you, which has been an absolute joy, uh, thank you so much for your time and your candor. What I've been asking people to do uh, as a way to kind of wrap things up, as I say, I'm 26, uh, kind of navigating that journey for masculinity. What would you say to your 26-year-old self? If you could give them one little nugget of advice, uh, what would you say to that younger self of yours about their relationship with masculinity and identity? There are two mottos I live by. One is do something today that your future self will thank you for. And that's all about those things that you wanted to do. You said that you, when you were a kid, you said you wanted to travel the world, you want to do this and the other. Okay, so today's the day that you start planning for it. And the other one is don't sweat the uncontrollables. Like, there are things that are going to happen. Right? If you can't control it, they're inevitable. Don't worry about it. You know, I know that fact that I'm going to be depressed or have a bout of depression. Or I'm going to get anxiety. I deal with it because in a, in a way that I know it's going to happen. So I'm not worried about it. But when it happens, I know I'm in a better place than I was previously. And I've got more tools and I'm more in, emotionally intelligent to deal with it. And I mean, they're, they're my two life mottos. And they're definitely two things I'd say to my 26 year old. But I'd also say to him, like, just let let all the baggage go, be vulnerable, cry, let it out. Don't be afraid to be you because you are a wonderful person. You really are. Thank you so much. I needed to talk to you today. This has been one of the most nourishing hours I have spent with people. And this chat, without sounding really cheesy, this chat will definitely be something my future self will be glad that I did. We are all kind of human animals that go through the same wounds and the same dysfunctional ways of dealing with them until we unlearn them. And um, just hearing you say that we're all kind of all 8 billion people kind of linked by that sense. But the group of people that are labeled men are taught that we're not like the other human animals. And we have this very idiosyncratic, unhelpful way of having to express ourselves. So uh, thank you so much for your time. I'll wrap things up there. Um, it's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.